0: Chapter Thirty. The rattlesnake embarked with the tide in late afternoon, as the ship slipped its moorings. Finn stepped out onto the quarter deck to observe their departure. The deck was crowded with men, more than she'd ever seen aboard. Under Creech's reign, the rattlesnake had been kept far undermanned to increase profits and decrease the likelihood of a successful mutiny. The latter of which Creech had sorely miscalculated. Now a full crew ran the ship, eighty souls all told. And at the moment all 80 were at the rails or in the tops to wave farewell to South Carolina. They looked across the cityscape with smiles, etching it into memory to hold it against the day of their return. Finn was relieved that her presence on deck was overshadowed by the moment of their departure. What looks she drew from the crew were either friendly from those she had known in the past weeks and months or awestruck from those who knew her only by tales and reputation. The reaction she cared for was the one she aimed to squash and the one she loathed was the one that circumstance dictated she embrace. She couldn't rule a ship when the commentar was friendly with the captain. She had to distance herself from the men she formerly worked among and fought with. The course she plotted for herself wound ahead of her, twisted and dark, yet she was fixed to it and had no intention of veering. As the port shrunk into the distance, Captain Bettany's plan sprung into motion. His warship approached from the south and announced itself with a volley of cannon fire. The rattlesnake was well out of range. They were in no danger, but to anyone observing from the shore, such details would be impossible to gauge. Finn had purposely kept this part of the plan secret from the crew, her reasons twofold. First, they could risk no sailor letting on about the affair in a local tavern or over pillow talk during the last night ashore. Their mission depended on freedom from English chase and if people suspected they were anything other than captured or dead, the way ahead would be needlessly and further complicated. Her second reason was less objective. She intended to use the mock battle to her advantage with the new crew. An early victory was sure to be well received. A second volley of cannon fire boomed from the long nines of the pursuing ship. Beat to arms! she shouted across the deck. Topper ran to the bell and swung the clapper as he bellowed orders. He and Armand were the only men aboard who knew what was actually happening. She'd included them in her act. The crack of cannons and the ringing of the quarterdeck bell dashed the bittersweet farewell of the crew. Cannon, Mr. Defane, said Finn. Full shot and away on my mark. He eye-eyed and dropped down the hatchway to the gun deck. Finn met Topper at the wheel and in mock seriousness consulted with him over their course of action. Topper pleaded loudly with Finn to take in sail and surrender. We can't match the guns of a man of war, Captain, and we'll not outrun her, he cried. Finn pulled Betsy from her belt and pressed the barrel into Topper's chest. Surrender's a coward's tactic, Mr. Topper, she said. All hands on deck watched her. It was suddenly silent except for the flapping of slack sails. The snake will outrun her or she will taste our cannon. Finn turned away from Topper and waved Betsy around the deck wildly. What are you boys waiting for? she shouted. Loose the foresail, batten the hatches, run up the colors of war. We've a wind to catch and little time to catch her. Up, up and to the east we go, or else we'll neck a noose by nightfall and swing the gallows howl. Finn pointed Betsy high in the air and fired. The shot cracked across the deck like a whip, and men threw themselves to work. Then, as if to reinforce her orders, a third volley of cannon erupted from the warship behind them. Finn winked at Topper and tucked Betsy back into her belt. Topper's face was white. She hadn't told him Betsy would be loaded. He turned to the wheel and spun it hard to starboard, turning them away from the wind. The mainsails thumped full, and the rattlesnake lurched into a run. With each fall of the prow, spray flew up like a geyser. Finn smiled. She felt like she was home. As he said he would, Captain Bettany gave chase until dusk, and then turned back, sailing to Charleston with news of their deaths. When the crew saw the chase was won, they sounded three cheers for Captain Button and broke into song. Finn enjoyed the victory from her cabin and did not make an appearance to gloat over her success. The less she was seen, the better. Let their imaginations go to work. Well, did they swallow it? Finn asked. Armand poured them each a shot of rum. Topper sipped his glass and winked. Ha! Did they ever! even heard a few of them let on that there'd been no wind till you give the order for it to blow. He laughed so hard he nearly choked on his drink. A fine sham, Shari, said Armand, and a fine beginning to a long and lonesome crossing. How long, do you think? Armand had charted them a course, more or less east by northeast, but well out of the common merchant routes, or so he said. Finn had little choice but to trust him. She certainly couldn't let the crew find out she didn't know how to chart a course. Six weeks, said Armand. Five, perhaps, if the wind favors us. Five weeks of straight sail and boredom. Finn had lived long at sea, but never outside of a day's sail to land, and never without a quick purpose or destination. A crossing was foreign to her. Five weeks with nothing to look for or forward to but empty sea. It was unnerving. She thought she'd seen and learned all the sailor's life had to offer, but this was new. As Finn crawled into her hammock for the night, her thoughts strayed back to Phineas Button. It seemed impossible that the man who had given her life had sought her out. As a child, she'd drawn images in her mind of who her parents might have been, what they might have looked like. And though she'd never dared to imagine that her father was wealthy or highborn or handsome, She'd neither envisioned a man drunken and vagrant. Why him? Oh, God, why him? But he'd sought her out, and she'd cast him away. And now, having abandoned him as surely as he had her, Finn was lost in a sea of questions, with no map to chart a course by. In the following days, the crew gradually fell into routine, and by the start of the second week, the men could run the ship in their sleep, Three full watches manned all posts day and night, and the excitement of their departure turned to boredom. Between watches and meals, the men played dice, sang songs, told stories, fished, made up games to keep their minds busy. There seemed to be no ill will among the crew, a good sign according to Armand, but Finn worried that men could only be kept so close for so long before they began to turn against one another. As yet, the only problem of any mention had been one from the cook, Pelton Quinn, or Pelly as he was called, owing to a combination of Pelly and Quinn sounding like Pelican. He was as thin as a tent pole, a trait Finn wasn't convinced was a good sign in a cook. When she'd asked Armand why he'd hired him, his logic was that a skinny cook clearly wasn't a good one, and therefore the men were likely to eat less and their rations more likely to hold out. Finn countered that if they ate less, They'd be hungrier and more likely to ransack the rations in revolt, but Armand waved her worry aside. So when Pelle had come to her one evening enraged that a gang of insolent rats had been pilfering his kitchen stores, Finn was less than surprised, suspecting that the accused rats were more likely hungry sailors. Rats on board a ship, however, are no small matter, and so traps were set. Pelly was calmed, and once again all was peaceful for the rattlesnake and her captain. Since leaving Charleston, Finn had been mulling over what to rename the ship, not permanently, but for the duration of their sojourn in the Mediterranean. It would not do to advertise to the world that they were, in truth, not as sunken and drowned as reports would have people believe. Her first inclination was to rename her the Liberty, but after a few days' consideration, she decided against it. She considered her a plethora of others, the Flame of the West, the Serpent, Georgia, and Ebenezer among them but she finally settled on a name from a story Tan had told her. She commissioned the change of the name, and Topper set the crew to work. They hung over the rail in rope slings and painted away the rattlesnake's old identity. And then, in white letters on a green field, they painted her a new one. Fiddler's Green. "'It's good,' said Topper, when the work was done. Finn agreed." Upon their tenth day at sea, Nut slunk into her doorway and announced that Jack's fever had broken. Finn went to him immediately and found Dr. Thigham sitting next to the bed, hunched over a thick, leather bound book full of macabre illustrations of the human body. How is he? she asked. Jack lay sleeping. His skin had a healthier luster, and for the first time since his surgery, he looked like he was actually resting. He is, ah, uh, not dead yet said the doctor. And just what is that supposed to mean? Finn asked. Jack looked better than he had since taking the wound, and the best the doctor could offer was that he wasn't dead yet? Thigham should have been beaming and anxious to take credit for his work. The doctor turned a page in his book and pushed his spectacles up on his nose. Uh, it means that the man has not yet died, a condition that I'm sure will not last. All right, Thigham, said Finn. She had had enough of the little man's oddity. Explain to me what exactly is wrong with you. He looked up from his book and gave her a confused stare. What kind of doctor expects his patients to die? Ah, I'm sorry, Captain, but I base the prognosis on my experience, which tells me I'm afraid that your man will almost certainly not live out the day. That's what you said two days ago. He screwed up his eyes in recollection. Well, he should be dead already, you know. That's why it's so difficult to find work for a doctor. After all, who wants someone around to announce that people are going to die? He shrugged at her and resumed his reading. Well, have you ever had a patient that lived? Asked Finn, not entirely sure she wanted to know the answer. Indeed, not a pity. Finn's mouth dropped open. Are you sure you're a doctor? Thigham jerked his head up aghast. Really, Captain? Should I ask if you are actually a captain? Should I question your ability to chart us a course or command men in battle? Should I question your training, experience, and qualification simply because you don't look like a captain? Finn winced, if he only knew how little his line of reason bolstered her confidence in him. I thought not, and I'll gladly ask you not to question a man of my significant education and understanding on the nature of his profession. The doctor suddenly became aware of his tone. He blushed deep red and seemed to shrink three inches into his clothes in embarrassment. Before Finn could formulate a reaction, the hatch banged open and two sailors bumbled through the door with a third man slung between them. The man they carried was groaning in pain and cursing each time he was bumped too hard or jostled too rudely. Barker fell out of the riggins, says his leg is broke, said one of the men. Barker howled in pain as they set him down on a cot next to Dr. Thigham. "'Get him off me! Get him off!' growled Barker, slapping at the man that brought him in. Thiggum reluctantly placed his book aside and stooped over in front of Barker to roll his pant leg up. The leg was bent where it shouldn't be and cocked out in an odd angle between the shin and knee. "'Oh, dear,' said Thiggum, "'he will surely die!' what "'What did he just say?' asked Barker. When no one answered right away, He became alarmed and widened his eyes in worry. Did he just say? You are not going to die, Finn assured him. She closed her eyes and shook her head. Oh, dear, repeated Thiggum, and he jerked the man's legs straight to set the fracture. Berker screamed and leaned forward, intent on throttling Lucas Thiggum into unconsciousness, but he was dutifully held back by the two men who had brought him in. What the bloomin' cripes is wrong with you? He yelled at Thiggum. The doctor ignored him and went about splinting the leg and muttering, Oh dear, oh dear, oh my. As the doctor tended his dying patient, Finn turned back to Jack. She ran her palm down his face. It no longer burned with fever. His huge barrel-like chest rose and fell in regular breaths, and he slept untroubled. His leg was wrapped in clean dressings, and there was no sign of blood staining the cloth. She leaned over and kissed his forehead and then whispered into his ear, You're going to be just fine, Jack, no matter what Thiggum says. Nut was waiting in the corner, patiently watching everyone around him. Finn assured him that Jack was going to be fine, and reminded him to alert her the moment he was awake. As she returned to her cabin, she called for Topper to hunt down Tillam, the ship's carpenter, and send him to her quarters. After a few minutes, Tillam knocked on the door, and she called him in. Tillam reporting, Captain! he said from the doorway. He stood in a preposterous stance of attention, his heels together and his chest pushed out as if he expected to lift himself from the floor and float by the sheer power of his exertion. He stared wide-eyed at the back wall of the room and did not look at Finn. Relax, Tillam. Aye, Captain! He didn't. You were on the justice with us, weren't you, Tillam? Aye, Captain! Well, why were you in prison? Tillam's face lit up. Stealing, Captain! It was odd that he seemed proud of the fact, and odder still, that simple stealing would land a man in an English prison hulk. Finn dug a little deeper. What did you steal? The governor hired me to build him a house outside Richmond. I done it, and I done it well. But the governor was a damn Tory, so I built a secret door or two, and I come back a month later. I sneaked in and got my taxes back. Decided I might as well get some other folks' taxes back while I was there. Didn't leave much. I'd do it again. I like you, Tillam. Thank you, Captain. Tillam thrust his chest an inch closer to the ceiling. A week prior, none of the men from the Justice would have taken our position so seriously. And yet here, this one, stood as if he were in the audience of a general. Did they really believe the stories they told? Even when they knew better? You mended my violin case, didn't you, Tillam? Finn pointed to it sitting on the floor next to her hammock. He jerked a quick glance at it and then resumed his examination of the back wall. Hi, Captain! Well, then I've got another job for you. Jack Wagon needs a leg. She paused and waited for him to answer. Tillam wrinkled up his face and thought, screwing it one way and then another. Never made a leg before, he said at length. Made a foot once, he added. His face lit up with pride. "'Well, then, I see I've sent for the right man. "'Get started right away, Tillam. "'Feel free to visit Jack in the surgery for measurements "'and let me know if there's anything you need.' "'Hi, Captain!' he nodded but didn't move. "'Dismissed,' Finn said with an exasperated shake of her head. "'As he turned to leave, she added, "'And Tillam, ignore anything Dr. Thiggum says "'and let me know if he gives you any trouble.'